You're listening to the Potato Candy Network. Hello and welcome to Blank Campaign. Woo! We've arrived. <laughs> so this is a new segment here on Blank Scenario. Started uh, from the campaign. No, started from the scenario, and now we here. We started with a scenario where we created individual adventures for you and helped you come up with inspiration, create your own. Then we moved to mechanic where we helped the DM figure out how to run the scenarios. And now we are on to campaign where we can make all of them into one lovely long chain of events. Although we will not be taking all of those lovely long chain of events and using them in this story, at least from my assumption. No, no, we are not using those specifically, but we will be creating a framework that you could use them in. So the concept for this show is to create the outline for a campaign. We will establish a world, establish a villain, and the goals of the players. We'll be making a whole lot of assumptions because <laughs> we will be creating this in a vacuum a little bit. Yeah, we can be looking at this a little bit as a mini-series. This will not be a full, long, ongoing series that we do, unless, you know, it just becomes that popular. We could do this several times. But I know Marie and I, this is one of our favorite things to do, is just to discuss what the what-ifs, which any writer and storyteller does in general. But this gives a good opportunity for those of you out there who, way back when, were like us, that struggle to come up with ideas, struggle to come up with stories. Not that I'm either of us are really good at that now, but at the very least, give you an idea of what that process could look like and maybe give you something that can help you out by listening through this. Consider this our version of a GM masterclass. Pretty much. I do want to go ahead and reference some of the materials that we are using in order to help create the framework. So, first off, we have the lovely Dungeon Masters um, handbook. Or five e or guide, as it's probably actually called. <laughs> yeah, it's a player's handbook. It's a dungeon master guide. Ah, fancy. So the first part in that book discusses creating a world. The second part discusses creating adventures. You can very clearly see where inspiration is coming from. Another inspiration that I do not have in front of me is your best game ever, which is a book that is a system neutral guide on how to create. Role-playing adventures from both the player's standpoint and the GM side. I don't recall who wrote that one. I'll have to figure that out for that next episode. That was by Monty Cook, I believe. It was from Monty Cook Games. Was it? Okay. Yeah. He originally used it in introduction with the Cypher system. The book itself, both of us would highly recommend. <laughs> throwback to curators. Both of us <laughs> would highly recommend that book. It's great system neutral essentially just a series of essays written by tons of different DMs that give you advice from everything of how to write the campaign all the way down to the back of the book has recipes in it mm -hmm. for snacks <laughs> to bring and or make for game night. Yep. So some of the stuff that I have gone through and kind of figured out has been from there. Also, Casey has a list of questions from the, I guess, GURPS creator. It's not a GURPS I creator. I, I will have to go look up the credit. There is a gentleman on YouTube, I ran across this video a long time ago when trying to figure out campaign building, and he asked some questions that he had come up with that I'm sure are very generic and straightforward, but to me are questions that I had never really considered and to me get to the heart of whatever story you might ever want to create. It's very, very specific and pointed. In fact, I use them for teaching role-playing to some of my students. I use these. 
So there's a lot of inspiration out there, and I'm sure we will reference at some point another source of inspiration that may not be as major at this moment in time. But that being said, um, let's go ahead and jump into it with the beginning of our campaign, the what if, as I am stealing from Casey to call it. (laughs) Yeah. So, oh, actually, I have to back up. I have to make all the assumptions up front just so everyone's on the same page Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of assumptions to make here. First of all, we are going to assume, much like teaching, that this is a perfect world. We have the exact players we need for the campaign and the exact number of players. So if we create a roleplay-based campaign, we've got four to six roleplay players ready to go. If we create a mechanics-heavy game, we have four to six min-maxers ready to go. We're just assuming that we have the players ready for this because otherwise we'll be sitting here debating who we're running this for. So for the sake of the exercise, we're assuming we have the exact players ready. Teachers, you know what I'm talking about. Perfect world. (laughs) All the money and resources that you need. Stupid test. (laughs) Yep. The other assumption is the rule system. For the mechanic side of this, we are sticking with basic D&D rules. So any assumption as to, okay, well, if they want to attack something, what dice do they roll? Look the D&D rules. there There you got the answer. For story-wise, that's where we're going to play around with it and have some fun. But mechanic-wise, we're sticking with basic D&D rules for the most part. There may be exceptions within that, but that's at least going to be the source of all of that. Okay, so that's all the assumptions that I can think of out of the way. That's a weird disclaimer. Okay. Well, no, it's for the sake of the show and for audience, it's the fact that if you and I both know D&D rules and we're not worried about the players, then we can do whatever we want to. Yeah, okay. So the big what if question that we're starting off with is one that actually is a campaign that I have honestly always thought would be cool to run, but just never really knew how because it would work best as a campaign. So this is a perfect time to test it out. So the what if is um, your players live in a world with pockets of utopia and around those pockets of utopia is a wasteland where outcasts and other groups will live. So... If you have ever read a YA novel, you probably immediately had one that came to mind that fits this exact format. Yeah. A part of me wants to ask the question that I love to ask my students. There is a difference between what the, the players know, or the DM knows, I guess, and what the characters know. So it's one thing to say that the rest of the world is a wasteland. It's another thing. It's another thing to say that the characters are told the rest of the world is a wasteland. So I know you were thinking, this was not your intent, but I know you were thinking YA novels. Mm -hmm. One of the first ones that came to my mind was the Uglies series Mm. by Scott Westerfield. I think it was Westerfield. That essentially they were told that the rest of the world is horrifying outside of this pocket utopia until they go out into this world and realize that there actually is beauty out there. It's just not the beauty... (laughs) it's the beauty they need not the beauty they deserve (laughs) kind of thing i mean when you consider he wrote that after going to a dentist in la being asked where he wanted his teeth to be in 10 years (laughs) really i didn't know that (laughs) that was one of the inspirations for that one (laughs) Hmm. but yeah that that is the first thought that occurs to me as far as the world is concerned now i i will say this as far as my little disclaimer for the audience Marie and I have very different ways of working on stories. Marie is very, very detail-oriented. 
And if you've listened to any of the shows that I tend to run games on, I am not as detail-oriented as I probably should be. I tend to be big picture and work within. Marie is very detailed and works outward. So our hope with this is that we will find somewhere in the middle to meet and make something that will work for you guys. So with that said, where are you wanting to go from here? Because you've got this concept of pocket utopias. So I think the next question is, if you're good with that concept, to ask what type of flavor do we want the campaign to have? Do we want this to be a heroic campaign where the players may have to go off and be heroes? Do we want this to be more mystery-based? Well, each of those, I think this is a thing we discussed beforehand, that each of those can be flavored by the adventure that they take, and each section of that adventure can be its own generic theme, I guess. Although I guess that could be skewed by the world. You know I always lean towards (laughs) horror, but that does not necessarily have to be this world. I do think... If we're saying that the world truly is a wasteland outside of these utopias, is that what you're wanting? There's two takes you can do with that. You can have it be where they are told it's a wasteland outside of it, but it's really just just another civilization. It's a really common trope to do, and it's one your players may see coming. So it might be better to have it be where it is actually a wasteland of some kind. So where it's just, it is that difficult to live out there, but you're not going to immediately die. So we're taking the Judge Dread approach. Um, I've not seen that, so I don't know. Yeah, they're, mm-hmm. they live in mega cities, and outside of that is a scorched earth, and people don't go outside of the mega cities. Yes, although it does mean that we're isolating our players quite a bit, or travel is going to be real interesting. I would mm-hmm. assume the, the latter, that travel becomes interesting yeah. then. Yeah. But that's something we can discuss. So we have a we very to tough survival situation for our players. <laughs> Pretty much. That is essentially most post-apocalyptic level stuff that there are utopias that have been developed because it almost had to Mm -hmm. because people gathered together to create that utopia to survive the wastes around them. So are we wanting then, based upon your comment, to lean towards a post-apocalyptic kind of setting for flavor? Because that could be interesting. Yeah, personally, I think that would be the most interesting approach to take with it but it's not the only approach there are different ways that you could take that where even you know if you you approach it like Spelljammer, that was the whole space travel D that this could be a planet that has been discovered that people mm. landed upon and just have built up environments or it could be this post-apocalyptic thing of there's always the war of the gods There could be some magical artifact that got found that has long since laid waste to this land and society is rebuilding. It could be any number of things, but I think that might be getting ahead of itself. Just a little bit. Um, Not necessarily. If we go off the GURPS questions that we had listed, one of the first ones is what world? And I think that lends to, even if it's an apocalyptic theming, that tends to be a very blanket statement. That really just means it's kind of grungy and dirty and everyone's out there in the desert wearing a bunch of layers of leather and goggles <laughs> because of the sand. That doesn't necessarily mean anything beyond that. So do we want this to be almost our world of sorts, like a source world for this society? Or do we want this to be another world that they've gone to? Is this a splintered world of some kind? If we want to keep it simple for now, 
it would be easiest to say that it's the source world rather than branching out well beyond that. True. Just for our first foray into this. <laughs> Keep it limited to one planet. Yeah. So this is our source world. This is where people have lived and society, quote unquote, has begun. And then we move, if we're moving through the GURPS questions, it goes from so what world, world into, era. into what era. So for me, that kind of gets into technology. Is this a source world that is living in the past, the present, or the future based on our understanding of past, present, or future? This kind of crosses over a little bit with one of the questions in the DM's guide, which is um, magic and its presence in the world. Because if you think about the fact that D&D has so much magic, this could very easily be a historical setting of sorts that is still a post-apocalyptic feel because magic can supplement a lot of what technology can do. True. What, what do you remember what page that was on? Uh, starts on page nine. Oh, for the air, for the magic thing. Yeah. Technology is oh, not wow. mentioned in the DM's guide. That is a combined question because you mentioned it with GURPS <laughs> and I wrote that down with magic. Isn't that, well, I know they mentioned like ray guns in the back of, I think it's the DM's book as a possibility. All right, so the core assumptions. So are we wanting to stick with the core assumptions for D&D? What are the core assumptions on that they list? Okay. I just write down everything. <laughs> so their core assumptions are that gods oversee the world, that they are real, and they embody a variety of beliefs, that much of the world is untamed, so it's a place that has not been gone out into and can be explored because it is very untamed. The world is ancient, so it's very old, and there is a lot of history that goes with that world, hence the untamed nature of it. There is conflict in the world's past that, again, shapes everything else that comes before it, and the world is magical. Whether magic is big or small, magic exists and is real like the gods. And then from there, we can build whatever our own style and flavor is around that. So we do have gods... We do have an untamed world, which fits in with your utopia, pockets of utopia mm -hmm. idea. I also like the idea that the world, the conflict in, in history of the world, that works mm -hmm. too, because you would have ancient civilizations that could be found. You would have ancient areas of the world that could be pillaged. You know, think of like the pyramids of Egypt kind of, you know, in the 1930s, whenever they were first exploring that, how dangerous was it to go out there? Mm-hmm. I feel like we should restart right here back into, hey, welcome to Blank Campaign. So here's our core assumptions. Again, okay. details versus big picture. Yeah, 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 yeah. For those listening at home, this is why we have to work together sometimes. Yeah, well, <laughs> most of the time. Okay, so with these core assumptions in place, you've got this untamed world that has mega utopias. Do you want them to be like mega cities or do you want them to be tiny little villages in the midst of a wasteland i say mega but i don't mean like they encompass like entire continent but like you have like the size of dallas maybe <laughs> rather the size of dfw yeah yeah you've got yeah. a city that kind of stands out as a beacon i never think of mega cities as an entire continent yeah that, that I would just, be dumb mega cities is such a vague term to me so i'm like i need to like ground this in something so like size of dallas yeah we're talking a county sized city yeah, yeah. Essentially, yeah. Instead of several cities within a county, Which it's a county-sized city. But <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's enough. All right, so we've got those core assumptions. We've got 
the generic for our world. So what's next? Um, just on the assumptions, there are two that I would want to, I want to discuss. Okay. The gods and magic, because I think magic can supplement technology if we want this to be a past era rather than future. You mean technology can supplement magic? No, no. If this is in the past, like this is actual like D and D times of you know medieval. Oh, oh, oh. Magic can do a lot with technology. Can. Yeah. So. Are we good with saying magic is still plentiful? There are wizards and sorcerers and all that stuff around. Well, I think that goes back to the questions we originally had. Here's where I think I've made us go off the rails from the questions that you had. I would suggest we start with those questions. <laughs> My goodness, we're like, woo, all over the place. <laughs> um, I would suggest we start with those questions and stick with those as best as we can. Okay. And then we can go back and discuss the details behind mm-hmm. them because those are your generic overview. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we've got magic source is the world. next one. <laughs> past, present, or future? Past. Past. Mm-hmm. So we're living in the past. Okay. Don't have bathrooms yet. Yeah. Uh, magic and technology, high or low for each of those? Because there's magic and then technology is right behind it. So that's the thing is, not that you have to have one without the other, but I feel like if you have high magic, you can have low technology. Because again, magic, one can take the place of the other very quickly. Mm-hmm. And you can have them both intertwined, but I think... For me, there's so much within DD that is magical, that is mm-hmm. fun to keep. I'd want to make sure there is high magic to be able to play around with a lot of that. That said, if you have a world that's in the past that is high magic and high technology, you're talking something like steampunk. Yeah. So it is doable to have both. I guess it's a question of if this is in the past, what constitutes high technology? Are we looking at steampunk where they don't have batteries and all that, but they have steam power? Mm-hmm. Which means you've got probably trains that travel a continent at best, because that would be coal or steam. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've if... also got automatons that can be magically or technologically driven. Yeah. I think most of D&D tends to operate with a high magic and high technology. Most of it. Mm-hmm. Although technology is rare because magic takes over most <laughs> things. But you do end up seeing in standard D&D automatons showing up you see stuff like airships showing up because it's magic infused technology that allows old school technology to operate with modern standards so i'm gonna put technology high okay and i'm just gonna put steampunk next to it (laughs) do you like that style yeah i think that works as well with the post-apocalyptic world the idea of steam being a power source that ma- goes along with magic works really well, I think. I mean, even at that, if we wanted to get really in the weeds with it, you could have, quote unquote, steam be what they call magic, which then means as far as flavoring is concerned, again, that's real in the mm-hmm. weeds, but as far as flavoring is concerned, that informs you as a DM maybe where the source of magic can come from, that maybe it is from the core of the world rather than purely from the gods and several different directions that you can take that as well. Yeah. So we've got magic and technology are both high. Okay. Next is society, which we've already kind of discussed with the um, what if, where we have a utopia, we have pockets of utopia with a wasteland around it. So these are good societies, purely good societies? I am using the term utopia in terms of it is perceived as good because... 99% 99% of the time, Utopia seems like it's a cover for some other group that's controlling you. <laughs> Fair. So the question then with that is, is a society actually 
a um, dictatorship of some kind? Is it a monarchy? Is there a democracy going on? Are they all interconnected? Are they all individual cities? Because my mind kind of gravitates towards they are each city is kind of its own. I don't want to say kingdom. What is like over in Europe? They had like the different domains. Like you had a duke over here and a lord over here, and they each had different dominions. Their territory, their lands. Yeah, I guess I guess duchies would be the best term. That was if you were a duke, you had a duchy. Yeah, so I'll go with that because I think that's the best term. So each city is a duchy of its own. They don't really answer to anyone specifically. So they're each individual societies control with no central controlling kingdom so that's my first thought as to what to do with them so here's where i'm going to direct some of this every world is built up of several continents this can be a specific continent on Mm -hmm. this world and on this continent there can be essentially a wasteland of disseparate villages or duchies whatever all uncontrolled it would be wise at some point to introduce some kind of law and other order, unless you're looking for a Wild West setting. <laughs> Otherwise, as a game runner, it's going to be putting a mm-hmm. whole lot of extra pressure on you every single time you run into to create a brand new everything. That's true. So I'm okay with going that direction. It's not a bad direction to go. Just be aware it might be more work later on down the line for each one. But, you know, that's where some of the fun of it is. I am not as much of a details person, so I like (laughs) to make everything semi-uniform whenever I create a world. I mean, you could have something where we have a treaty that exists in this world. So, And like you said, this, I think, would be one continent. This is not the entire world, Mm -hmm. because I don't think it would be interesting to have the entire world be the exact same. Mm -hmm. Especially if your players eventually want to explore outside of their own little continent area. You'd want to have something different for them to find. I keep picturing in my head a combination of an awful movie priest which is apparently based on a good comic book and dune Hmm? for the world that they're living in (laughs) that there's this wasteland out there that is mostly unexplored but that has valuable resources that people need to go out into to contend with and there's these cities that protect the quote-unquote average people because to go out into this wasteland is basically inviting death upon yourself. Just going to write down the spice must flow. Steam. <laughs> the steam must flow. So for a central unifying force, you could have a treaty that at least most of the cities have agreed to. Whether it is a symbolic figurehead that observes everything or if there is actually a figurehead that set all this up. Or maybe there's one city that said, hey, we should get together and actually kind of get along. Because that would allow for trade. Mm -hmm. If you have a treaty between cities of we're all going to agree to these basic laws. It's a United Nations front. Yeah. Essentially is what it is. You have this council of all of the different groups that may or may not meet, depending upon how you want to run it, that agree to protect one another should something occur to one of them so it's kind of a mutually assured destruction (laughs) approach to it that if one of these cities gets out of line and attacks another one they have to be aware that they're going to have the entire council coming down upon them Mm -hmm. to maintain order something else too if this is a world that is ancient a lot of times we'll have laws that are similar across different countries just because it's basic human rights laws and even, mm. 
I'm thinking Old Testament with the Israelites. They did their own thing 90% of the time, but they had the exact same law at the beginning. So even if you're going to splinter off, you're going to have the same basic of laws. So some things are going to vary, but you're going to have the same basic code as who, when you go here, don't steal. Okay, one last little side bunny trail. What might be interesting here is in the lore of this world, whenever we get to it, that there is a reason that they have this council. And the reason is because of the world that they now have got caused by a group that decided to splinter off and created some force that either is out there roaming the wasteland or has in some part created this wasteland that they now have to live around. Mm. And when I say wasteland, I'm looking at scorched earth. That's yeah, what's yeah. going on in my brain. Not like there are trees and it's a... You no, know, no, whatever. I'm thinking like Sahara Desert where yeah. you can live out there, but it is very, very difficult to. Yeah. As far as the eye can see, it is a scorched <laughs> earth. Yep. Which then means a lot of your stories are going to come from within the society. Or if you have bounty hunters that go out into the wastes, that they're going out to find these ancient places where there's essentially resources that have been long since forgotten. If this is an ancient place that they've had this agreement for years and millennia, they may have forgotten what created it in the first place, which then lends you the ability to build up all manner of stuff around it. Yeah, I like the idea then of having a council of cities, at least for the main ones you would interact with in your area. Mm -hmm. And if travel is very difficult, then you're not traveling across country very often. Mm -hmm. um, even caravans would not want to travel that far. They would have a route that they take, and that would be about it. And then at some point, your players could hear about this ancient temple that may or may not have access to the water plane. And there's like a guy inside who's painting on the walls whenever they get there. And they find out that there's a water plane hole portal that they can get. And it might release the water plane. <gasps> so we go from a connected it. So we go from scorched earth to a um, water planet. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> so Anyways. we now have floating cities. <laughs> For those who don't know, we're referencing a past blank scenario. Be sure to go to Blank Scenario and look up Temple of Kraken of Doom. Yeah, the Temple of the Kraken of Doom. <laughs> so I think that covers most of it. And then as far as the utopia side goes, I don't want to say it's like the cities are awful to live in, but the cities would be just kind of like everyday cities. You have someone who is a leader who mm -hmm. probably is not like a king, but is something of sorts. And it's just passed down through a um, lineage for leadership. And then, you know, if you want to have a council... That they or what is it, um, parliament kind of proceedings, or mm -hmm. if you want to have just a sole monarch. If you've got a United Nations style, then below that, each city gets to decide how it's governed. So you'll have some towns that have essentially gone the way of a cult that believe that their god is going to protect them from the wasteland. You've got some societies who may have, in fact, have turned to technology to save them from the wasteland, and you've got some that may be derelict and maybe being run by dictators but that gives you a variety of approaches that as long as all of them agree i'm not going to mess with you if you don't mess with me then they can all coexist quote unquote peacefully within this very harsh environment one of the most important things whenever it comes to creating the world and i would say specifically for horror but essentially what we're creating here is a very horror-esque setting is that the setting has to be a character unto itself. So if you've created this place that you can 
very well see in your head that is a very alive and living world that wants nothing more than to destroy you, <laughs> then the setting has become its own character. And then it becomes what does the setting want? What does this world want? I'm even thinking if you have cities that are basically cults, trade is going to be very sparse for that city. And you're going to have it to where you walk in, you pay for water and food, and you leave. And it's going to be one of those things that every trader and caravan on the map has marked stop here as last resort. Or you have cities that may have a dictator that they have notes of when you go here, make sure you have these three people staying outside because they're not allowed in. Or these three people need to keep their mouth shut when they walk in because they'll get us in trouble. I mean, not to turn it goofy, but you could have a cult that is blatantly evil, but you could also have a cult that is essentially what we see nowadays. They don't present themselves as a cult. They present themselves as a group that is able to survive and able to survive well in the wastes. And you don't know about any of the struggles that they have until you join them. Just thinking the Walking Dead, um, Tiberia? No, Terminus. Oh, yeah. The Terminus cult in Walking Dead. If you've never seen that part <laughs> of Walking Dead, it is, Walking Dead, it is a very dark section of Walking Dead, which is a dark show in general, but... You see why they became the way they did, and they don't present themselves as evil. They're mm -hmm. just surviving in the way that they believe they should. So I'm thinking about Midsummer. whenever I say cult, because they're a group that brainwashes one character in the midst of all of it, but they never present themselves as being dark or evil. All of the stuff that they do that is quote-unquote dark is behind the scenes, and ultimately is for the quote-unquote betterment of the character that they want to stay. They're helping her to come to terms with loss of family. So you've got this, well, that's a whole blank scenario unto itself, but worlds like that you could find in this environment. So we've created essentially a very open-ended question as to what is this city going to be? And I would say, for me, I would have a collection of cities that probably agree just because of proximity that they tend to get along and have a lot of agreements. And then the next group over probably agree, have one or two that are the extremist. But you're going to have kind of groups that tend to be very similar that your players would interact with until they go beyond those borders. I think that covers society pretty well. We've got a council, and then each city is governed slightly differently, and you can play around with that as need be. The leader of that council is sent, or the leader of that group is sent to the council whatever that leader yep. may be, because it may be a collection of people. Yeah, they basically disagree. You send a representative, mm -hmm. whether it's a leader or a spokesperson, one of the two. Um, this is not one of your GURPS questions, but this is one that I have from the DM's guide is the um, deities. So mm -hmm. do the gods actually have an influence on the world and how much so? Because you mentioned having a cult, and if we have a world that is scorched earth, it seems like either the gods screwed up, <laughs> humanity screwed up, um, humanity-esque screwed up, or there's an apocalyptic event that happened. So that means the gods may not have as much power as they used to, or their power just may not be as called upon as often. Typically, you do not see the idea of the divine existing in the world. I may be completely ignorant. I know um, shows like Critical Role will use the idea of the divine gate that there is a barrier placed in between the divine and the mortal plane so that gods can interact, quote-unquote, but cannot directly show up on the material plane. Because otherwise, a god with that much power could do legitimately whatever they wanted to do, mm -hmm. and that is dangerous. 
Uh, typically for most D and D type stuff, that's where you end up getting into your apocalyptic events. Cause there's some kind of God's war or some kind of war amongst people over a God that ends up causing the gods to step back from the world. Hence this whole ancient world that's unexplored. Mm-hmm. So, why are our gods removed? Are they removed? And by how much? Because I like the idea of most of them being removed from the world. Most, but not all. Yeah. Of having one or two that maybe people still remember and worship. And that could be something too where, not that they're finding new deities all the time, but as they're exploring and as the world is discovered, you occasionally hear about this new god that they discovered a temple to that they believe has been just asleep this whole time. Because, I mean, even when you look at Norse mythology, um, Odin had Odin sleep, and so he would be inactive for long periods of time. So the idea of gods going inactive just because they maybe are recovering or because there are no followers is not unheard of. On page 10 of the DM's Guide, they start getting into the gods and how you can do the different pantheons. It says that most D&D campaigns will use the loose pantheon, which Mm -hmm. is like 50 <laughs> different gods. Um, then you can also do a sample pantheon, which is pulling from like the Roman deities, the Japanese deities, the Nordic deities. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's other religious ones that you can do like tight pantheons, which is what I attempted to do with my campaign where there were only three gods rather than a bunch. And you had the little um, demigods. demigods that controlled things on our plane that were, semi-powerful but not very powerful and then there's mystery cults (laughs) and it emphasizes the history of the god and reenacts it with rituals they have their own foundation myth but that's what they recommend and there's also monotheism dualism animism and forces and philosophies I like the idea there still being gods around um, and them still having an influence of some kind on the world. Because if you think about this being a scorched earth, it is a harsh environment to live in. So these cities have to have something to lean on. So having a you know church, a temple that is kind of central to your society as a city would be important for people to kind of look to in times of trouble. So... Reading through one of these, it might be best to go with animism. That's mm. um, looking at animals, no spirits, or kind of, but no. Animism is almost the native approach. Everything has a spirit mm. and should be venerated and worshipped as such when it benefits you. If you've got this world that was created by gods and this world that has now become scorched, then what is left has become a god unto itself. So the god of the mountain, the god of this sword that protects me, the god over this one magic that I have. There is spirits living within everything that we have and own that is the remnants of what is left. This is the force, isn't it? (laughs) No, it's not the force. It's not the force. This is, animism seems to be, pardon my ignorance, a combination between Native American approach and Japanese approach to religion Mm. that there is almost spiritualism everything is a spirit of some kind or has a spirit of some kind and can slash should be worshipped as such including people could Mm -hmm. become a deity 
if they do good deeds and great deeds for long enough. So taking the, more of this, a general spiritual approach of, because I'm trying to think too within D&D terms, that means a cleric would be like a domain cleric wouldn't necessarily hail to a specific deity, but more to a general philosophy within the world. Essentially, in animism, religion is not as important as respect. Mm-hmm. So it's much more about respecting the world around you and honoring everything you use. Yeah. When, one of the things they say here is if a new religion or a new belief spreads through the animist land, typically you're going to find adherents, not converts. People that adhere to this specific religion rather than I am 100% for it which then makes our idea of the cult much more interesting because they could believe in even their leader <laughs> as a deity by that point. Yeah. You'd be able to get the Pharaoh as a God as, as sorts, mm-hmm. or you'd have cults that say that there is only one God or there is a old God that we should worship instead. Yeah. That would definitely um, throw a monkey wrench in the world. It almost makes me think a little bit as to at least the video game approach of Mad Max of that world of having the, oh no, yeah, Mad Max of having the, um, I live, the I yeah, the half life, and the fact that the cars are so honored, it's yeah. almost that approach. I mean, it fits well within the style of world that we're building. You would not often, I would assume, find people that believe in gods and magic if you're living in a place that is essentially desolate. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a question that I have. Because now that you brought up Mad Max, the societies that these people live in, for me, may be on a spectrum as to whether they are true oases in the desert, are technological marvels that have been built up in the desert, or are essentially slums that are barely getting by, but because these are people that cannot survive and thrive anywhere else, now survive and thrive here. I would say most areas would be a cross between technological and magical marvels, that they are actual cities that have been established in this wasteland that are able to survive and continue, not to grow, but to continue to survive fairly well. So people who live there have comfortable enough lives. So you could spend your entire life in the city you're born in and be fairly content. You're probably a peasant by... You know, D&D terms. <laughs> mm. So you're not going to be super filthy rich, but you're not dying in the desert. I would say you could have like bits of oasises. Oasises? Oasis. Oasis. Is how I'm pronouncing yeah. it. You could have oases like in Mad Max where you have this natural resource that people have built up around that you could discover. And that may even be something like a way station that people go to. And then I don't know if I would say there are slums. In this world, I would say probably you'd have caravans that could appear like moving cities or moving towns. I would recommend a slum just because I think it would be most interesting. That's where you would end up getting your thieves and your low-end, maybe your most eclectic cities from (laughs) is from these slums. I mean, I would say that would be almost like it'd be like a trading post. You have these slums that people go to that are not necessarily people live here because they want to. They live here because they have no choice. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was getting at, yeah. <laughs> okay. I that's, don't know if I would say is, it's specifically right? a trading post, but... <laughs> no, it's it's yeah. the area that people have gone to who have been 
they cannot live in a city. They don't have a natural resource to live by, so mm-hmm. they have to, they've had to build something for them to live in, and it's just a mass people. Yeah. So I guess in that sense, yeah, there would be slums. They would probably be located nearby something else, though. Otherwise, it would be really tough to survive, or they're going to have a bunch of thieves. Here's the two thoughts that I have with this. If you if you want interesting towns, you need to have extremes. Mm-hmm. So if you have a natural oasis that to me, I'm not even thinking Mad Max. That's not even the natural oasis I'm talking. I'm thinking there's a city that has built up walls around it that in the middle of this city is essentially a garden or an orchard that has grown up and is basically like a walled off jungle. They have managed to cultivate the ground and taken care of the ground enough that they've managed to avoid the scorched earth on the outside. So when you go inside, you are legitimately walking into what feels like a utopia. Mm-hmm. And that very well could be your your cult city, right? <laughs> or they're a city of vegetarians. They have no reason to eat meat because they have gardens yep. that they live in. On the flip side of that, if you're going to have something that is quite you so utopic, then on the flip side, you need to have something that is this giant almost Tower of Babel-esque city that has built on top of itself until they've decided they cannot build anymore. You do not live at the top. You do not live in the bottom. The safest place in the city to live is in the middle, in the heart of the city. Mm -hmm. Because if you live on the bottom, there is a constant chance of it collapsing and them having to add another layer on top. So as you go up to the city, you see there's essentially a wall that has been built out of collapsed ruins that just has naturally occurred. So they have this very high raised up tower type city, almost like a, I I picture this massive jello mold Mm, type of city that they're living on that may even like as your party is coming up onto it, if you sit and watch, it kind of sways a little bit in the breeze. This massive, huge city that's still slightly moving. That's the kind of thing that I'm thinking. That's your opposites. I think that's all the major questions. There's two last ones that we'll get to in a minute. One thing I want to, I guess, simplify for the campaign. Mm -hmm. Where are we putting our players? Because I think having those extremes right next to each other is going to feel, to me, too jarring and also be very difficult to track. So for the main cities your players are going to start with, they need to be somewhat similar. So are we starting them in kind of the middle ground if there's a natural oasis? that they live nearby do they start off at the really nice high utopias or are they starting off in the slums because whichever one they start off with i feel like they would have similar cities around them to start so you want to start pretty low level wherever it is that you start so do you want to start slums or you want to start with the natural oasis because a natural oasis does not mean perfect world it just means you have a ready supply of water that you can survive off of, but you still have to work the ground. You still have to go hunting. You're still having to do quite a bit of work and it's still pretty dangerous. Personally, I don't think you start in any one of the major towns that we have. I think you have a group of travelers that happen to meet up in some small outpost outside of any one of these cities and give them the option. What might be interesting and easiest is to build like what we have here in the States, build the Twin Cities. Two cities that are essentially the same. Maybe they were even run by two twin brothers, you know, the Castor and Pollux (laughs) Rome appropriation, except 
they built two separate towns because they couldn't get along. <laughs> Give the players something to play around with after their first adventure. But that gives you that magnifying glass approach of I'm going to start super tiny mm-hmm. and then I can expand out into the rest of it and let them see the extremes once they've reached, you know, maybe sixth, seventh level. So do we want to start in a higher up utopia city area? No, I'm just saying an outpost. I don't think it has to be one of the extremes. Okay. An outpost gives them enough time to get to know one another as players as characters in this world and it gives you a nice small little area to start off in to build up and out from plus if you already know who the big bad is going to be for your campaign usually you feel the ripples the strongest from the choices of the big bad in the little outpost before you're going to feel them in the big city okay so you want to start them outside of any major cities correct and then move to major city once we kind of know where they want to go correct okay I don't think it matters which one you start them near. Okay. I think you can figure that out from your players what because again, we're we're assuming right now that this is the perfect group. Mm-hmm. So as a DM, you're deciding whatever your players are going to go towards the most, that's where you would start. So if you've got a bunch of people that want to play evil characters or want to play rogues and thieves, you might start them off with a lower end city where an idea of crime or yeah, where an idea of crime might be a whole lot more open than in one of these high-end cities where, of course, crime is going to be there, but it's a whole (laughs) lot more, you know, wink-wink, hush-hush type approach. So I don't know if that really matters. To me, it's more natural to have them just scattered rather than having these specific pockets of here's the... Here's the really rich city and mm-hmm. here's the really poor cities and all of you are going to live nearby each other and mm. all of you are going to live nearby each other and That's you're never fair. really going to combine. It, especially if you have a really rich city, odds are high that you're going to have some kind of a slum that's nearby mm-hmm. because those that can't make it in that city are going to become outcasts from that city and have to build up their own civilization yeah. out there in the wasteland. That is true. I didn't consider that. I guess it would be government types would be around each other rather than city types. True. That's, and that, that is yes. two different things. Okay, that that's fair. So we have cities and we have our three types of cities. Utopia, natural resource, which is basically just like they have a river. They live nearby. Utopia, oasis. And, and then slums. And slums. And then we also have trading posts, which I think is a good idea to have. Because it gives you a waypoint. Um, I'm thinking kind of like in Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. The the haberdashery. Yeah. That's basically a trading post. Is what it is somewhere in between cities that you can stop off at to resupply, to restock. But it's not really in a city anywhere. It's just its own thing. So that could be somewhere that they basically start off at. It also gives the players a nice... Like, you do not want to give your players analysis paralysis. Hmm. Even in session zero, you usually go over the map... Now, I've never done this. I've only heard tell of this. <laughs> but you usually go over the map of the world and where some things are in it so that your players can go, ooh, that's the one that sounds interesting. And you can start your story from there. Mm-hmm. With this, if you start in something like an outpost, you are not giving them a thousand different options that they can start off with, like saying, here we are in the middle of a mega city. What do you want to do? <laughs> yeah, because outpost would mean they have the option of you know, hunting down criminals for a city. They can be bounty hunters. They can go and explore ruins. They could travel to the slums and steal stuff, whatever mm-hmm. they decide they want to do. And especially if you know what your players want to do up front, just tailor that starting hook for that. Yeah. And if they're going to be bounty hunters or adventurers in this world, 
it would be more natural for them to be outside of the city doing that work mm-hmm. to start off with anyways. So the only main thing you'd have to tell your players is make sure you have a reason to leave a city at some point. What are you searching for? What is your one thing that you need? Because especially in a um, post-apocalyptic world, that could be anything from my grandfather is trying to find the lost city of Atlantis to I'm trying to find my spouse who ran away and I believe they're still alive out there. Anything else that you want to cover in this specific run? Because I feel like we've kind of laid down some ideas that work and we've kind of... I've kind of gone in a thousand <laughs> different directions. Yeah, we've rambled a little bit more than I think either of us planned on. Definitely more than I planned on. But I think we have a pretty solid foundation for what we want the world to look like. And while a lot of it is hinged upon the types of cities, I think that really is the biggest framework that we needed. Because the idea of having animism being the main religion means that we don't have any specific deities, but we can have deities that maybe different people refer to but we have a general spiritualism that kind of flows, which probably honestly means we're going to have a lot of people that are indifferent to religion. Or are very religious towards one specific thing that they believe in. Yeah, but that means clerics and paladins and all that are going to be very much based upon what the domain is rather than a deity. Mm -hmm. So that still works for that. Magic and technology is high. So you've got a lot of options that you can still play around with. One thing... I know in the questions that I would like to discuss very quickly, because I actually have an idea for it, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure if you want to get into, is the idea of the big bad. The last two questions were the antagonists and general party goals. I think the general party goals, there are so many options out there. That's one of those questions that, unfortunately, we can't really answer without having to just say they are looking for something, because it gives them reason to explore. That's kind of the only thing I could say for a goal for right now, but... If we're going to assume our perfect party, what do we want our perfect party doing a bunch of? I would say exploring. Exploring. Because that would be exploring both runes and cities and traveling. So you see this being a lot of dungeon crawls? Yeah, not specifically dungeons every time, but yeah. So as far as an idea is concerned, the first thing that came to my mind is in this world where we have the scorched land, um, what if there is a deity that has been locked away deep within this world? under the surface of this world and there is a being that is trying to find out where this deity is and how to release them because their belief is if they release this deity then the world will be created or or created anew Mm -hmm. and brought back to the luster that it (laughs) used to be so the antagonist is trying to basically bring about a rebirth of the world whether or not it is actually rebirth or destruction is kind of up to dm i guess but that's their goal it could be very interesting if that if as the players you over the course of this discover that the the deity locked away that's the only way to stop him from destroying the world that he was the one that was at the center of Mm it you know you could take it either way however you wanted to but i do like that as a big bad that you've got this character maybe a wizard specifically Mm -hmm. that has discovered ancient texts telling of the deity or the thing that is going to recreate the world and what they meant in those texts before it got mistranslated Mm -hmm. was they were going to recreate it into a scorched earth that was devoid of mankind it's interesting then because if your antagonist is trying to bring about i guess what they believe to be a recreation of the world you could have them interacting with the party early on Not necessarily as in help me save the world, but in I am looking for these items. I'll pay you money if you bring it to me. Mm -hmm. 
And as you go on, you realize more and more that he is essentially trying to bring back someone who is actually going to destroy the world based upon what the party has found mm-hmm. versus what he's found. I think my only concern is how convicted is he of this belief that this one God is going to save the world and how easy would it be for the party to dissuade him of that? Because the party either is going to be suspicious of this and not want to help him for no Mm. good reason because the players are going to choose to or they're going to help him and it's just going to bring about the end of the world anyway because they're not going to know better. I mean, I think at that point we're talking about a specific scenario as if it's a short story rather than an entire campaign. This is something that can be built up and reintroduced in several different ways over the course of it. You could have players finding evidence of the war, finding mm-hmm. evidence, speaking of a specific deity, even um, find evidence of you know any number of things. And even into how we've got magic working in this world, that could be the reason why there is a spirit in everything, that that's essentially what's left after all of this went down. I think as long as we kind of set it up right to where the, I guess, major events with this villain lead up to the party figuring out what he's ultimately doing and having to stop him in some way, I think I'm okay with that. Because, that, again, it's it's one of those things where it can become very much so of, well, this text says this guy's going to destroy the world, so do you really want to go with that? <laughs> so well, you have to have someone who's convicted enough of what they believe and you have to have the party figuring it out late enough that you now have a, what is it, a time clock or whatever it is? Yeah. You've got a clock ticket now that you have to stop him before he does something unreversible. We don't have to stick with this idea. It's just an idea that I had. But even at that, that's also the reason why I said these are translations. If we stick with this idea, it's mm-hmm. not. you're not going to find a text that says he's destroying it. You're going to find a text that says, and then he started recreating the world. And then he was locked away. Things that hint at the fact that the world we have is him attempting to recreate it. Mm -hmm. It's all in how you translate it. That makes it a little bit less obvious and a little bit stronger for the antagonist rather than being a villain to purely be, I'm just working against this group because they just don't understand. Two things I'll say on the antagonist, and I think we're probably good to end it here for now. One, I would recommend having it be to where he is discovering it along with the players. Mm-hmm. So he becomes convicted of it later on. So it starts off with there's this deity that was doing this stuff. Players bring more and more to him, he realizes. So he doesn't start off as the antagonist. He starts off as just maybe someone who's hired them or someone they're friends with and becomes the antagonist over the course of the campaign. Yeah. A second thing, too, is if this deity is that powerful, there may be some influence so you know how in Cthulhu, because I always reference that, yeah. um, he can influence those of artistic minds. Mm-hmm. If this is someone, if this wizard is looking to find this DET and this DET can sense that, he may start influencing it as well. So this may be someone who's not entirely of their own mind by the end. So you've got that question of, are they doing this because they want to or because they've been convinced of it by someone else? That's fair. That's fair. And again, so, we don't have to stick with this specific story. It was just a starter. Mm-hmm. No, I I like that as a concept, though, especially if you want the players to be exploring. And that gives you a way of building up the lore as we go. So as we're building up these major events, we can build the lore into it that we would need for this world. And even at that, we don't have to define exactly what happened. We just need enough pieces of information for the players to be invested in. There was a world before this. Something happened. This god was at the center of it. One thing I will say that 
is a concern now that I bring up this idea is you want to be careful as a DM that you don't build your entire world to lead to one end unless that's the entire story you want to tell in that world. Mm -hmm. So the one that we're creating, I think you could create this story and I'm not sure if you could create another one. This definitely feels like this once the story ends is kind of stuck potentially. So that would be one thing to watch out for. If you want multiple stories, you're going to have to have multiple plot hooks that get thrown in that's not all tying back to one simple thing. I know this is, as a first-time DM, that was one of the big struggles that I had that, in my mind, you know, it's the the Charlie Day approach (laughs) of the conspiracy theory on the wall. Everything's connected. (laughs) It doesn't have to be. It legitimately does not have to be. If you, as the DM, are getting stressed out about where do I need to connect these things in, you don't. You really don't. In fact, it's probably better that you don't because then you get all of these different ideas you can have your players having to decide between rather than all roads lead to Rome. (laughs) And once the story's done, it's done. And I think too, with the idea of the campaign, something like this would be your party is leveled up enough that they could fight the wizard and or they could fight a god if needed to be. But this is also an in-game answer so this big bad is your in-game big bad you've got 20 other big bads we're going to come across they're going to fight mob bosses and goblins galore at the very beginning and like casey said they don't have to be all interconnected they can be we have these goblins that are raiding this one slum can you go help them there are probably a lot of details we can still figure out and i'm sure figuring out things like races and who exists in this world and where figuring out some specific cities that your players run into and npcs We also have major events that'll happen during the campaign we'll have to figure out as well as any kind of calendar that we need to figure out potentially that might influence the world. Plus, we've also not talked about multiverse, which I don't think actually is a major influence in this one. For what we did or in general? For for this campaign, I don't think any idea of a multiverse is going to be a major factor. So that might save us a little bit of a headache. Honestly, as much as you say that might save us a headache, that might be the solution. If you have a multiverse, then you may have a deity in this one that has caused all of these problems. But there's another universe Mm -hmm. for like plane shifting can Mm -hmm. be introduced to where now it's not all about this one god. It's about the one god that was here, but now we have other influences outside of it that keeps that story going. Yeah, I mean, I say multiverses and you have different planes within D&D, including the plane where the other gods may have gone to. So that might be your non-in-game solution is if he brings back one god we bring back a different god and we're still in balance i have a hulk (laughs) basically so we're gonna end this episode here then and we will pick back up next time with probably major world events i imagine just to kind of flesh out exactly what we're wanting to happen in the campaign with who do you have an idea for the name of this world just so we can start using a name i am I can't use Dune. That's taken. No. <laughs> uh, I honestly, I'm trying to think. I really don't have anything come to mind. Do you want it to be fantasy or more modern? Um, I lean towards fantasy for a name. I want to give it a very ironic name, something that is like gift or blessing, because at one point it was, and now it's become almost a curse. So this is the elemental planes that I'm currently looking at. One of them is where the plane of fire and earth overlap. It's called the Fountains of Creation. Okay. We also have the plane of ash, which is the is great con 
conflagration. The conflagration. We also have cinder wastes, which is always fun. So do you want to use the one from the DM book or do you want to come up with your own? We can come up with our own. There was an idea that I had in here. I'm like, I know there's a really cool name for one of those planes, but I couldn't remember what it was. The um, conflagration was probably the one I was thinking of. Hold on. There's also Isle of Dread in the Sea of Ice. There's the Mud Hills, City of Jewels, Sirocco Straits, and the Mistral Reach. The Land of Donum. How are we spelling that? D-O-N-U-M. It's the Latin word for gift. I like it. So Land of Donum. Land of Donum. Or Dunum. Haha, <laughs> Dunum. Hey, to be fair, depending upon how we set up the deity, that could be considered his gift of humanity. All right, so we will leave Land of Donum there. I have been Ray, a.k.a. Quinn Yell. I have been Casey, a.k.a. Grumpy Elf. If you have any suggestions for what we should do for... The blank campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for any uh, world events that you would like to see in this or any suggestions for cities that we can use down the line, let us know. And we will see y'all next time. Boy, I feel like even after a discussion, we kind of <laughs> went off half-cocked on this. Okay. <laughs> details, details. Yeah, well, again, big picture person. <laughs> Hello, Bob Spuds here on the scene once again, reporting for Potato Candy Network. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing on your podcasting app of choice. If you have a scenario prompt you want us to use, send it to us on social networking with Instagram and Facebook at Potato Candy Network. And if you really liked us, consider supporting us on Patreon for bonus content monthly, such as behind-the-scenes sneak peeks, inspirations, and future episode previews. Check out our brother show, Dreadful Tales, for some taut tension full truly terrifying tales of terror. <laughs> Got that on the first try, you know. And finally, please leave us a review, as it helps your recommendations and helps others find the hard work we do here at Potato Candy Network. Oh, and friendly reminder, if someone asks you if you're a god, don't think of marshmallows. <laughs> Nobody likes that guy.